Welcome to the Pharma Letter Podcast. High-risk MDS, often referred to as pre-leukemia, is a chronic form of blood cancer with a significant level of unmet medical need. MDS is a complicated disease, presenting several obstacles to drug developers, and no new therapies have been approved for the condition in over a decade. But that may be about to change, with multiple drug makers, including some large pharmaceutical companies, including Takeda, Gilead, AbbVie, and Novartis, making significant progress. In the last few years, at least half a dozen Phase two or Phase three trials have been initiated globally, with a variety of approaches under investigation. Three such trials have started this year alone, including a pivotal study of Cirrus Pharmaceuticals candidate Tamibaratine, an oral RAR agonist, which could become the first in a new class of treatment option. With us today to discuss the treatment landscape in pre-leukemia, as well as the company's plans for Tamibaratine, are Cirrus Chief Executive Nancy Simonian and Chief Medical Officer David Roth. Perhaps to start with, we could just talk about the the context of HRMDS. Um, there haven't been any new therapies approved for, for over a decade. Um, perhaps just to start with, you could say a little bit about why that might be. Sure. So um, why don't I take that one? Yeah, I'll start with an overview of, of higher risk MDS just to frame the context uh, to understand why that may be the case. And you know, we should appreciate that MDS or myelodysplastic syndrome is it's a disorder of the bone marrow where the precursor cells that give rise to maturing blood cells are, are abnormal. And this can result in the failure to produce blood cells. So the levels of the blood are low or they may not function properly or actually both may coexist. Um, it's a pretty serious disease and it's one of the most common groups of myeloid malignancies. You know, patients uh, have common symptoms that uh, we see in MDS uh, that can be related directly to the blood cell production abnormalities. So uh, as an example, they can have fatigue or shortness of breath from anemia, you know, that's low red blood counts or bleeding due to low platelet counts or fever or infections from low white counts. Those are the cells that fight infections. Um, many times patients become dependent on blood transfusions. And what's really notable is um, a large number of these patients, maybe a third or a half, ultimately progress from MDS to AML. And so this really not only underscores the relationship between MDS and AML, but, but why um, it's been so difficult to develop drugs in that space. So to start with, uh, MDS is uh, what we refer to as heterogeneous. It's variable. The symptoms are varied from patient to patient. The clinical presentations can be different depending on which cell line is most prominently affected. And, you know, it, it has a wide range of, of severity. Most patients are older uh, and that because of their age, they, they bring with them other medical problems. So that can complicate the approach we take when we want to treat them. Um, often, you know, we would like to give them intensive chemo, but they can't withstand it or they actually don't even want it. Um, now, the current standards are a class of drugs called hypomethylating agents, which are um, otherwise called HMAs, uh, but they, they really offer limited efficacy with low complete remission rates and responses that are not typically long-lasting. So, so this leads us to 
why there's you know challenges in in drug development and i guess um to start with there's been historically a lack of innovation in aml um and that also then meant a lack of innovation in, in higher risk mds you know we we've often referred to aml as a, as a graveyard for drug development so for many years um more recently we understand more about genetics of, of AML and there have been some recently approved targeted therapies, but um, there's much less progress that's been made in, in MDS. You know, I, I said earlier, um, a, a reasonable share of the patients with MTS progress to AML um, and they do have common drivers, but, but getting at that mechanism, what, what contributes to MDS in the first place and why does it transform from MDS to AML is really difficult. So I think that that sort of explains in part why less progress has typically been made in, in MDS. You know, we, we think it's really interesting that they're on a disease continuum, largely defined by the percent blast and the marrow of the blood. Um, but despite that, you know, AML is more acute, MDS is more chronic. It often bubbles below the surface uh, until it presents. Um, and I guess just to conclude, you know, we are making progress in AML and we're seeing that it's starting to translate into MDS. We, we look at MDS as like the natural next frontier to pursue after AML. So, um, you know, I'll leave you with the, the notion that we think it's an exciting time. Uh, and if you're a patient with MDS, we think there's great potential and lots of reason to be hopeful that there are new therapies on the horizon. Great. Well, thanks, David, for that answer. Perhaps you could just say a little bit about um, Tamibaratine then. What is the unique um, mechanism of action that you have for this product? Sure. So, Tamibaratine is an oral drug, uh, and it targets uh, the nuclear transcription factor called RAR-alpha, which is the retinoic acid receptor alpha protein. Uh, and we're focused the focusing the development um, on a novel subset of patients uh, that we discovered in our labs. The these patients um, were identified by comparing the regulatory regions um, of both healthy and diseased cells derived from these patients. And we identified an alteration in about 30% of patients that drives the overexpression of RER-alpha. And what's really interesting is that we, we've made this observation both in uh, cells from AML patients as well as MDS patients. So we think that's really exciting. RER-alpha um, plays a key role in, in blood cell differentiation. And if you have too much of it, uh, too much of barrier alpha, that is, uh, it could block the differentiation of the cells unless it's bound by, by um, the RAR alpha agonist, tamibaratine, which is the drug we're developing. Um, and so having too much of it can not only block differentiation, but it could lead to uncontrolled proliferation of these undifferentiated cells, which is a key feature of our RARA positive patients. So, you know, we're working with uh, an RAR alpha agonist called tamibaratine. And, it's not been demonstrated to be cytotoxic or myelosuppressive. And fortunately, we see you know, no significant overlapping toxicities with other commonly used drugs in the AML and MDS uh, space. So we believe there's a, a broad opportunity um, you know, to develop it, um, which is supported by our preclinical and clinical data where, where we think development of tamibaratine in, in RARA positive higher risk MDS patients really is an ideal opportunity. And that, that's largely, uh, you know, based on a combination of, of attributes, including uh, our prior clinical results, which in AML patients showed very high 
complete remission rates, favorable tolerability. Um, you know, it's an oral drug that's biologically targeted, and we're you know able to select for patients, which we think provides um, a, a portfolio of attributes that distinguishes it as a highly differentiated approach uh, in the current development and treatment landscape. Right. Um... Uh, and perhaps we could just focus a little bit on that question of toxicity. To what extent does that sort of change the drug development approach when the, the indication in question is, is very sensitive to toxicity um, and you have a strong focus on trying to make sure the candidate has this sort of higher levels of tolerability? Is there a difference there in the way that you develop the candidate and the way that you approach things? I think there is. And uh, the reason I feel that way is um, is that uh, for all of these therapies, we have to realize that uh, you know, the goal is is to prolong survival and improve the quality of life of the patients who are being treated. And while we've learned a lot from our approaches in patients with AML, AML is in some ways distinct from MDS. Uh, AML patients present acutely, they're very sick, you need to get them into remission quickly, uh, and sometimes you have to use highly toxic approaches to uh, get them into a remission um, in order to start their treatment. Whereas MDS is a bit more of an insidious disorder. It, it takes a while to uh, develop and patients can go on for some years. Uh, so the name of the game really is to provide a chronic, well-tolerated treatment that uh, doesn't totally disrupt their life. And that's why we're so excited about Tammy Barantine. Um, it's an oral drug. It's readily easy to administer. Uh, the, the tolerability profile is that of a generally well-tolerated uh, medicine, and we think there's great combination potential for it. Uh, we've already demonstrated nice data with um, our combination with an HMA, a hypomethylating agent called azacitid. So we think that um, the, the context of the patient population being older with comorbidities in, in all likelihood and the need to take the drug chronically over long periods of time really requires uh, ease of use and um, a tolerable profile. So, you know, so those are those are considerations that we take take into take forward. Perhaps I could just bring Nancy in here just to talk a little bit about the sort of broader picture of drug development and talking about how important it is, particularly with a rare disease, to engage with patients and patient advocacy groups to facilitate development. It's uh, it's vitally important. I. Uh... You know, I, I started Ceros nine years ago. Um, we were a group of initially discovery scientists, and we were bringing patients in at that time because uh, I felt it was so important that we understood what it was that patients really wanted and needed for their disease. And I distinctly remember uh, bringing in some AML patients back uh, seven or eight years ago because we were starting to profile AML tumors, and that's how we made the discovery that David uh, told you about. And most of the AML patients we brought in had been younger, they had received bone marrow transplantation, and they were cured. So the, so the very few people that actually were able to talk to us were ones that had actually been able to get curative therapy. But several years ago, we brought in uh, a patient and his uh, wife uh, with MDS. He had actually transformed from AML, uh, uh, AML to, uh, from MDS to AML. And you know, we heard about the burden of the disease for him. Um, he what didn't have opportunities for curative intent. 
he and his wife were going on a regular basis to the hospital to get transfusions. Um, he had re relapsed from his prior therapies, was in a clinical trial. And I think it really struck us that voice of what they were looking for as people living with a chronic illness um, that was significantly impacting his quality of life. And unfortunately, several years later, uh, actually just a few months later, we learned that he had, um, had passed away and had been in touch with his wife. So I think it's so important as you are developing drugs that people have an eye always towards what is it that patients need. Um, and so in addition to that, you know, patient advocacy groups are also vitally important. A lot of the patient voices that we have at the company come from our collaboration with advocacy groups who want to partner with us. And I think not just, again, talk about the science part, but really the aspect of the human aspect of what patients want. So we're not just looking to approve a drug that the regulators want. We actually want to get drugs and develop the kinds of drugs that patients really want. And then I think finally, as we you know advance further in clinical development, we're you know building out our team to ensure that we engage you know with the NDS community in a way that will help support our shared goal of bringing uh, better therapies to market for these patients. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about the the size of the patient population. Obviously, this is a rare disease. Um, what's your information about sort of how large the patient population would be in the U.S. first of all, or globally, and then connected with that? you know, what would be the sort of related commercial opportunity for the company? So there are uh, 15,000 new cases of high-risk MDS diagnosed each year in the U.S. and Europe. And that translates into, you know, over a, right now, a billion-dollar market opportunity. But, but remember that high-risk MDS is also, in my mind, kind of at the very infancy of developing therapies. As, as David said, we the only approved drug are hypomethylating agents, and after that, there's really nothing. I think that we're right at the beginning of being able to transform diseases like high-risk MDS and AML into kind of what we actually have done in the myeloma space. I worked many years ago on, a, on one of the first drugs approved in decades for myeloma. Back then, there was really no drugs approved except chemotherapy, and now we've turned that from in more of an acute disease where people died relatively quickly now into a chronic disease. So I think that as we develop more of these therapies, we think about how to put them together with other drugs. Uh, we have the opportunity to have a, a, even a larger market opportunity uh, because of the, uh, of the nature of this, of this disease and, and the, uh, the importance of, of bringing new therapies for patients. And just looking forward, um, assuming all goes well for the company and for the development program, um, what are your thoughts on, you know, post-regulatory um, commercialization? Are you thinking about partnering or, or commercializing the product yourself in the U.S. or elsewhere? When I started the company, it was the goal of building a fully integrated biopharmaceutical company that discovers, develops, and commercializes drugs. And that continues to be our ambition. And uh, we have in the targeted hematology space, uh, Tammy Barrett team, which we're now in phase three trials in high-risk MDS. And we also have a, a second drug in the targeted hematology space that uh, it's called SY2101. It's a novel form of arsenic trioxide for another form of AML, um, a genetically defined form. 
and there's a high degree of synergism between those two programs. Um, and we uh, and, uh, expect to be commercializing uh, both of those. We have anticipated uh, NDAs for both in the 2024 timeframe. You mentioned this is a sort of treatment area which is in its infancy. We've seen multiple other drug developers working in this area, including some larger companies like Takeda, AbbVie, Novartis have, have candidates. Has something changed to facilitate this kind of progress? You know, why is this happening now, do you think? Well, you know, my first comment on that is, number one, we're thrilled for patients that there's now so much attention uh, and focus on developing new therapeutic approaches for MDS. It's really a, a good thing. Um, in terms of why this is happening now, I, I believe it's because we've learned so much from AML. There have been uh, really great strides and progresses being made in understanding the molecular underpinnings of AML, many of which are relevant for MDS. And as a consequence, there have been um, multiple new approvals uh, in recent years. And we're seeing those drugs and uh, being developed as single agents and as well in combinations. And, and as a consequence, they're now moving into higher risk MDS. So, so the learnings from AML are, are, are definitely benefiting patients with higher risk MDS. The other thing to consider is that molecular and genetic testing has now become commonplace and has really helped us to define patients in much greater detail. And doctors are now looking for um, a, a target that they can apply a drug against. And so as we've um, elucidated the biology, uh, it's lent itself nicely to new selections of, of drug candidates that can be either um, administered by prescribing the drug or, or tested in, in clinical trial settings. So, um, you know, I think it's great that physicians are now commonly thinking about uh, what, what their patient's profiles are all about when they approach the diagnosis and setting up the treatment regimen for their patients. And so that, that's really helped. And then I guess the last comment is that we're, we're learning a lot more about how drugs work. And we know more about the safety uh, of drugs and how they can be used and, and combined in rational ways such that the, the mechanisms of actions work together. So, you know, we get more bang for your buck, so to speak, when you put two drugs together than either drug alone. Um, you know, this sort of, you know, goes back to your earlier question about the considerations of safety as it relates to drug development. I think that when you understand how drugs work at a molecular level, you can make some rational decisions around how to advance them. And so those types of uh, thoughtful considerations are are being utilized now to uh, advance our development efforts in the MDS space. Um, so, you know, I think that's just a really important point to put forward. And I don't know, Nancy, if you have any other thoughts about about that or anything as it may relate specifically to our own trial. I would just add that, uh, you know, patients, you know, need and deserve better I agree with David. We're thrilled that there's lots of drugs being developed. This is not a type of disease, unfortunately, that we're likely to cure. So it's going to require, you know, multiple different types of approaches. It's a heterogeneous disease as well, and um, I think it's a it's a great opportunity um, in time for making some real headway in this space. And you know, we believe tamiveratine. It's, it's really the only, you know, tar biologically targeted drug in phase three development. 
Um, we think that's very important. I mean, the holy grail, because we know that cancer is, in general, is heterogeneous, is you know, finding the right drug for the right patient. And uh, we think that's a, a real opportunity for us um, in this space and what you know, physicians and patients would like. Right. You mentioned that you're in phase three development um, at the moment. Could you say a little bit about the next sort of 12 or 18 months for the company? What should we look out for um, in terms of clinical or commercial milestones? So we, uh, we started our phase three trial in high-risk MDS um, earlier this year. It's a uh, you know, randomized uh, placebo-controlled trial comparing tamiveratine plus azacitidine to azacitidine alone, which is the standard of care. Um, we are using a complete remission as the primary endpoint. And what we've sort of said is that we um, have projected a potential NDA filing in 2024 uh, from that trial. We also uh, plan to initiate um, the SELECT AML1, which is a randomized phase two trial of tamiveratine in combination with Venaza um, in the second half of this year in newly diagnosed unfit AML patients. And we also expect to report data from that uh, AML trial, initial data in 2022. And just in terms of um, financing the company, you had a a 90 million strategic financing. Um, I believe that was your last funding round. Can you say a little bit about your financing? You're actively looking for financing at the moment and how your sort of cash runway is extending. We're in a, a great uh, cash position. So you're right, we raised a 90.5 million uh, led by Bain. Um, and that was in, in December of last year. In addition, we also raised uh, about 75 million in January of this year. And with those two um, raises, we are well-funded with cash into 2023 beyond multiple expected milestones for both Tammy Baratine um, and our two other programs, SY2101 and SY5609. It's a fascinating area of development and um, thank you for taking part in the conversation today and we'll be sure to watch this space in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks, Simon.